Welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast, a podcast for early stage web developers and the mentors, teachers, and communities that help them along the way. Hey, Timmy Tope, and welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast. Um, hi, I'm Timmy Tope Asama. I am a front end developer from Nigeria. Um, I currently work as a front-end developer at EVO Corp, where I my day-to-day involves writing front-end code, making architectural decisions, and converting designs to UI. And I'm super glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's totally my pleasure. Wow, that sounds really interesting. So, um, okay, so uh, how long have you been in the in the tech industry? Like, how long have you been coding? Um, I've been coding since 2021. Um, it's kind of like a funny story behind my foray into um, software engineering because my original interest was design. Um, I liked colors. I liked how colors could mean different things and how design put together really well can speak different things to different people. It was really fascinating. So I started out learning to design and then I found that it wasn't for me because it didn't it didn't engage my mind as much as I wanted it to. I didn't find it fascinating or fun. I also did not find it challenging. And for the most part, I found it boring. So in search of something still in line with colors, beauty and like like design art, I went into um, front-end development. Um, it was really cool watching people write stuff on a laptop and and then the, the stuff they write on, on a coded so it becomes like beautiful things on the screen, moving around and functional. It was It was really fascinating. And I thought, oh, well, I could do this. So I started doing it and I've loved it ever since it has, it has its own share of, of ups and downs, struggles, but it, it has been interesting and fun all the way. And I have no regrets, none whatsoever. So yes. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I have something like where I started was kind of similar. Like I was a classical guitarist musician and struggling to, to make money and, you know, take care of my family and stuff like that. So I had to also find something else. Like I, I didn't have the like losing interest, like kind of finding it boring reason. Mine was more like, like I said, financial. And then I also kind of stumbled into the, into the web and front end world. Back then, um, one of the very popular ways to build sites was using Adobe or well back, but then it was Macromedia Flash. And, um, yeah, so that that was pretty cool because that that allowed you to bridge everything because you could do motion, you can add sound, you can do audio, and then of course you know you're doing animation and all that kind of stuff. So so it brings all of those different disciplines with. And then later on, I learned ActionScript, which is like a flavor of JavaScript that you used inside uh, Flash, and then you could do more advanced things. And so that's how the coding thing started. So it's interesting how there's this kind of similar transition from one thing to another. So I know that you're part of the chaos community. That's where I, I 
basically sent out a message there saying, hey, is there any junior devs that would like to chat on a podcast? And you're one of the folks that reached out. Um, how did you find the Chaos community and how has being part of that community impacted you and your career? Um, okay, so I found out about the Chaos community in 2022. And um, it was fairly a new community in Africa. And I found out about it through Ruth. Um, Ruth Ikega is the um, community manager for, for Chaos Africa, I think. And um, she kind of made a post about it on her social media. And it just kind of seemed really interesting doing DEI stuff. Now, I have never been in a position where I had to work actively to um, influence DEI. So it seemed like interesting stuff to do. And DEI would come to matter a lot to me because on upon joining that community, I found that there's not one type of people in the industry that I find myself. And they are diverse, they're diverse people with diverse struggles and uh, issues with inclusion, as well as issues finding equal opportunities. For example, I'm black and um, it's obvious the, um, the kind of um, disparities that occur in the tech industry on the basis of race and racial background. There's also the fact that I'm a woman. There's a whole pay disparity thing going on. And I'm also neurodivergent. So it, it kind of like is a loss, loss, loss on all sides. <laughs> you look at it some kind of way. <laughs> yes. So, um, um, so yes, it, it came to be something, it came to be something that I loved. I, I loved that, um, companies, certain companies, organizations genuinely cared about being inclusive. I, I love the intentionality that came with um, with uh, making sure that nobody's excluded, especially in open source, because um, there tends to be a um, sort of even, I think in open source, like the exclusion is easy to miss or omit because quite a lot of people contribute to open source and stuff so yes it was it was really lovely i got to work on a project um to be headed by the github co-pilot team and it was on how ai um ai tools can further help um um neurodivergent developers especially github co-pilots and there i had to speak with quite a number of neurodivergent developers as myself um i got to hear their experiences how it was maintaining motivation at work, how it was um, um, dealing with day-to-day activities, tasks, deadlines, um, requirements, estimations, and how AI tools can help in like all these areas, even in collaboration and um, and problem solving as well. It, it was a really fun project that lasted a couple of months. And um, the end of it was really, really amazing. And um, I was also a part of the team that set up KiosCon in Africa, the first ever edition last year. And it was also a lovely experience for me. It was, it was lovely because first, I got to meet with so many young people in Nigeria that were totally, totally passionate about open source. And it was such, it was such a delight for me. So I would say being Chaos, being Chaos, like, January has been an amazing experience. I haven't had much time to contribute of recent because I have like 
other commitments going on, <clears throat> like um my degree as well as school. Um, yeah, my degree as well as work. Sorry, work I meant. And um, it has kind of like left me very little time to actually contribute actively. My degree ends sometime um in Q2. So I hope to really, really throw myself into it after um school is out of the way and I get time to do even more for the community. But yeah, being in chaos has been a lovely experience so far. Yeah, that's amazing. So there's a lot there that I'd like to dig into. So I think the first one um, is the AI angle. So you mentioned that you were part of a project and one of the things that uh, you talked about was GitHub Copilot. You spoke with the, the team who works on GitHub Copilot, right? And one of the things that they that they discussed was how these AI tools can help neurodivergent people perhaps be more productive or feel more, um, do better in the workplace, essentially. So I was wondering um, what aspects of GitHub Copilot or AI in general um, do you think has a benefit for people who are neurodiverse? Um, okay. Um, for me, I think, I would think AI tool would be um, helpful to me because it it helps me to think through certain issues that probably would would be difficult to think about. Now I kind of have a problem with um, having to ask, like I I need <laughs> being neurodivergent means you you need to outline step by step what you need me to do. Now sometimes you find yourself in a setting where people can't exactly do that. Now, they tell you what to do, and then they expect you to take initiative of whatever steps you need to take. Now, while that can be really good sometimes, sometimes I find myself struggling on some days where um, I'm overstimulated, some days where I'm experiencing like brain fog and stuff like that. It's I feel comfortable um, um, having these brainstorming sessions with any AI to one hand, such that it guides my thinking process. Even though sometimes the thinking process could be garbage, but it still gives me something to work with and helps me walk through step-by-step step the problem that I'm supposed to solve. Now, on other days, it, it's, a, it's a great um, co-engineering tool. It's like, it's like a friend or buddy that you have when you're trying to think of a solution to something and um, it will be a longer process to um, probably talk to a colleague, wait for them to be available, and then work on your stuff and 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 help you with it. So it's just something that's available on demand. Then also dealing with deadlines. Now the days when um you you just you just can't like you just can't at the moment, but you know that certain times like. If you had to think through the entire thing on your own, you probably not meet up with your deadlines. And um, but AI tools are a great ways to like great ways to like shorten the problem solving duration or the problem solving time, and just give you a head start as to where you're going. And um, 
Yes, it's and your days where you you have the most stupid questions like how to center a div, for example. And it, usually you probably go on Stack Overflow and then there's like a whole list of things to do, but and there's too much information. You're trying too many things, but it's with AI tools like Copilot, it is clear cut. The times when I get errors in my code editor and GitHub Copilot kind of like helps me understand why I'm getting that error and what's about and provide like possible solutions. Sometimes knowing why the error came about is most certainly all I need to fix things and sometimes not, but it's just really great to have it on hand. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So do you think that maybe sometimes and for some people, um, it's easier to have that conversation with the bot because there's less of a, um, how can I phrase this? So you don't have that, that problem where you're concerned about how the other person is interpreting your questions. You know, the whole idea about stupid questions, which is, you know, just something that we should just forget about. There's no stupid questions, but alas, in our, in our minds, we often, judge ourselves too harshly and we think like oh my goodness i i can't ask somebody this question they're going to think i don't know how to do my work do you think sometimes it's just for some people it's just easier to chat with a bot that's not going to judge you for the questions you ask but just try to help you yes i would i would say i would say yes i would say yes and the part about judging ourselves too harshly um i'd i'd say that's that's very true and especially in a field where there are lots of like amazing people doing amazing things and you're just this one person in the universe that's momentarily forgotten how to center a div and um you want to ha- ask for help but people would think that as bare minimum right? And it's just nice to have something to go to without um, the judgment or without feeling like you're incompetent at what you do. So I I would say yes. Okay, interesting. Now, from a different perspective, um, so in the Mycelium network, which is like a community of junior developers, um, when the whole AI thing really got off the ground, like early 2023 um there was especially then it's still happening today but uh it i think it might have quieted down to some extent but there was a lot of talk about how many people are going to lose their jobs but over and above that it got a little bit more specific and for a lot of junior developers they were getting scared about what does the future look like for them in terms of uh, opportunities for work? And if there's not going to be opportunities for junior devs, if you know employers aren't going to employ them, then how are they going to bridge that that gap between junior and like mid-level or just beyond junior? So people, is this something that that concerns you, or do you think that? that is not something we should be or junior developers should be concerned about? Um, As someone who um, thinks AI tools are great, I'd like to say that I don't think they'll ever be as great as having an engineer work on your team. Yes, maybe they could cook up 
uh, a few things. Um, maybe they could do really good stuff. But I think there's an element of, um, uh, do I say humanity now, that um, engineers bring to a project that you can't replace with a bot. Now, sometimes communicating with a bot, telling what you want and having it spit it out back to you can be a breeze. Other times it's a headache. Sometimes I find myself arguing chat GTP and mid-conversation, I'm like, I'm arguing with an AI tool. <laughs> and then it, it gets really funny and, and I laugh it off. But um, I don't think there's a reason to fear. I don't think there's a reason to fear because I don't think um, AI tools um, have reached human intelligence level. And I don't think they ever will. It might sound pessimistic because I'm a firm believer in good technology. So I know that um, technology is boundless and we would see even greater strides in the coming years. But I don't think that they would replace them. Maybe they would take up the minor tasks like that developers have to do, make it super easy. Um, and the only way I think it would ever affect developers is if it's reaches human level intelligence. And I don't I don't think it is at the moment. And I still don't think it'll it'll ever reach that. Um and AI tools will merely continue to be AI tools to help humans, to um help humans solve high level tasks and just that. Um I don't think they're good enough to replace um engineers. And I wouldn't tell engineers to be angry or to be um to be afraid of losing their jobs over AI tools. Um, I know it's quite impressive what certain AI tools can do. So um, it brings about this whole frenzy and panic. Oh, it's going to take our jobs and stuff. But I genuinely don't believe that. So I don't think we have anything to worry about. Right. So you you think it's more like this is just going to make you a better developer because everybody now has a little uh, pair programmer with them. Uh, all the time. Exactly, exactly. They they would, they would always remain tools and tools to help um, speed up work, um, to help um, make stuff faster, and to just have as a, a peer programmer for like engineers. But I don't think they would ever take their place. Cool. So um, I'm curious about um, just the general tech scene and um, in Nigeria. How do you find it? Is it a supportive environment? Is it um, moving super fast? Would you do you find that there is enough opportunity for you um, in the market? Have you reached out to maybe employers in other countries? And if you have done that, have you found that hard to do, or do you feel like being from Nigeria, it doesn't? prevent you or you're, you don't feel like you're excluded from from the rest of the world. And I'll, I'll add a little bit of context to why I asked that question. Like, I'm from South Africa. So, you know, same continent. Um, and I know sometimes it's it can be hard to find, say, for example, you want to work for a larger tech company. Oftentimes, you run into problems where, for some reason, they can't employ where you live. Um, so they say they're remote. But then if you apply then they're like oh it's only remote us which is like that's kind of strange um 
And but then if they are remote, completely, truly remote, then they still you still find problems, especially I've found in Africa where they just like, oh, we'd love to give you this opportunity and actually you might be a great fit, but we just can't contract with you even. So never mind giving you a permanent position, we can't even contract with you. Have you run into any such problems? Or have you do you know anybody else who might have? Um, yes. So um, this is like, it happens a lot. It happens way too much, right? Um, there's certain times when I'd interview for a job, first interview, second interview, third interview, I'll probably get a final letter to um, meet um, with the company before I'm introduced to the team onboarded and tell them where I'm from and, um, yeah, I don't hear anything back from them. Some companies have the decency to give you a reply. Um, we don't hire from your region. Um, some other companies just don't. You just get ghosted. So um, the tech community is kind, in Nigeria is kind of um, robust. We have amazing engineers in Nigeria. And um, I think it's kind of sad that... Um, these exclusions that this exclusion that we speak of happens on a larger scale. Um, you have stories from hundreds, thousands of developers in the country who apply for opportunities abroad. It could, it could be scholarships, it could be job opportunities, and then you tell them they're from you're from Nigeria, and they don't. You either don't hear anything back, or they tell you they can't hire you based on where you are. So I'll tell you, it's a very huge barrier. I think. Um, if allowed to um, participate um, fairly without these barriers in the worldwide job market, I think Nigerian developers would be amazing at it because they do really insane stuff over here. And um, some people manage to scale these gaps, although very hard, and have to go to like very difficult um, seasons or rigorous scrutiny. But... Um, if given the chance to to fairly compete on um, on global stage in the global industry, I think Nigerians would do really really well. Um, so the Nigerian tech industry is one that I'm genuinely proud to be part of because there are lots of smart people. I've made amazing friends, building amazing things all over the world. Um, some have built amazing things within the country itself. I think two unicorns have come out from Nigeria alone. Um, I think there's seven in Nigeria. And I think, was it two? I think, I think, I think it's about three, I think. And it's just a testament to how great Nigerians are building. So, um, yes, these issues you speak of, um, they exist. They exist on a very, very, very large scale. Um, Nigerians find it difficult to compete on the global stage simply because of where they are. And while in some cases it's understandable, like cases where you have to be present in the office maybe once or twice a week, or you have to meet up for um, company-wide meetups and stuff, maybe you would understand. But in cases where the job is said to be um, remote, in quotes, um, yeah, it, it isn't. And there's often this saying that people say, um, when um, companies say they're hiring EMEA, that's um, in Europe, the Mediterranean, um, I'm not sure what the other is, natural, and Africa, you just know that the A in it is silent because um, <laughs> they definitely will consider someone in Europe. 
you definitely will consider someone in Europe over someone in Africa. And it's just one of the um, discriminations and barriers that we have to deal with when competing on the global stage. But yes, I think the Nigeria Texan is full of, is bursting with amazing, amazing, amazing minds and engineers, as well as designers, artists. It's just amazing. Really, I'm surrounded by so many talents. So, yeah. Yeah, it's that, 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 is, that is a true fact. But hopefully we can all like kind of work together to find ways around this. Maybe at least on the African continent, we can do a better job of um, supporting one another, you know, across countries. Like, um, like I said, I'm from South Africa. I know folks in Zimbabwe that does amazing things. I know I've had somebody else from Nigeria on the podcast some time back, uh, Precious. Um, he's also great and he's part of the community and super. I think maybe we can start start at home, so to speak. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you. Mm. There's a Nigerian um, saying that says charity begins at home. It's often misused in context like this, but allow me to misuse it here again. Um, I think uh, we'd only thrive on the global stage if we start this at home mm. and if we if we build and support one another cost country wise to compete on a global stage. And I think we'll thrive if this happens. So yes, I do agree with you. Yeah. So in terms of open source, um, so of course chaos is a community and it's a community that is based on open source and people contributing to open source. But um, I spoke spoke to Martin Woodward uh, earlier this week. Uh, he is from GitHub, and we were talking about the Octaverse and the, so the report from from GitHub that talks about the state of open source. And one of the areas that the report touched us on is the growth of open source and open source contributions across the world. And for example, India is one of those countries where it's just booming. It's just going from zero to to a hundred and you know naught seconds they're they're bursting out of the seams with contributions to open source and that kind of thing but if you look at the heat map that they overlay on the world the entire african continent is blue which means cold which means there's not a lot of contributions coming from africa and now of course what we just touched on this exclusion from the world stage that plays a role but do you think there's other things within the African context that is stopping people or making it hard for people to be more involved and more active in the open source world. And this is from your perspective, right? So this doesn't have to be a right or wrong. This is how you see it from what you've experienced personally. Um, yes, I think another thing that um, I think could be improved upon is open source education. Now, um, you can only tap into something you're aware of and you can only tap into something um, you know exists. Um, some people have heard of open source, but I can tell you that most people don't know what it entails. Um, most people don't know the intricacies of open source or how you can even supercharge their careers. Some people think um, it's, it's just doing free work for community some people don't think it it has any effect whatsoever on on their careers or their 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 
um, the goals as a professional in whatever field they find themselves. Some people don't even think, now some people even think that open source is just for developers alone or just for engineers alone. So I think open source education could do a huge, great, a great deal of good for the African community. People need to know that um, joining open source communities, joining to build um, software to help other developers around the world is one, a privilege, and two, such an opportunity that you can tap into. I have met amazing people on the Chaos team. Um, I've once worked on um, um, the API you won't hate as an open source developer. In fact, um, as a junior developer, the code base for APIs you won't hate was where I overcame my my fear of large code bases. Now, when you go into open source communities, you find that there are like lots of PRs, large code bases. It's it's very hard to find where to start from, and it's also um hard to to it's also easy to get lost in how large a code base is and that's why one it would be um of good experience if more open source communities were more beginner friendly now when i joined i think i first tried joining an open source community in 2021 and it didn't work out because i joined the community and then they were writing um, Haskell, I think. And I have never written Haskell in my life. And I was in the community, um, senior engineers, we keep communicating, saying words I've never heard before in my life. And not much attention was paid to beginners on the team who actually wanted to contribute stuff. Now, I'm pretty sure that around then, if I probably got approached with a simple task, like maybe writing a simple script in Haskell, it would have encouraged me to actually take up a course in Haskell, learn a few things so that I could actually contribute. And who knew if it would have changed my mind about the script or if I could have learned something other than um, what I know in software development today. But it wasn't, I felt, I felt lost. I felt out of place. And so I ended up leaving at some point. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm not alone in this experience in that it's probably the same for number of, a number, a large number of people. You go into an open source community, you join the community and you don't know where you come in. You don't know where you fit in. Um, it's different with chaos, right? And again, that's why I love chaos. I joined chaos to either contribute as a developer or, um, as a manager. And I could say proudly that as a beginner in the community, joining the community call was one of the most heartwarming welcome. It felt like I was a part of something. And it wasn't hard to pick up something because, again, everybody was made to feel welcome, right? Um, you're welcomed to the team. You're, you're, you're introduced to the projects that are available for you to contribute to. Um, they learn about your proficiency level in certain things. And in cases where you have proficiency levels that are quite below what is required at the moment, you are assigned to someone who's more senior than you. They put you through. You probably split tasks with them. You go to them if you're having trouble completing these tasks and then you become a part of the family, really. You become part of the community and you're actively contributing to it. So I think apart from um, education, I think the state of open source communities could be more encouraging for people to join in, especially people that are beginners, especially people that um, 
struggle with language, communication, um, or even fitting in in these communities. So um, I think these two things would go like a great, a great distance in helping developers in the continent. Yeah, that's amazing. Thanks so much. Yeah, that's great. I, I, I love what you said about the chaos community and all the work they do to onboard you. Like truly, I mean, the great thing about that and, and like one of the things that I always say, why I think open source is such a great tool, if you want to call it that, or a just a great way to on-ramp into programming in the tech world is because it teaches you so much more than just writing code. Or if you're a documentation writer, it's more than just writing documentation. If you're a designer, it's more than just design. It also teaches you the softer side or the less talked about side of the software industry, which is um, brainstorming, thinking through problems, collaborating with other people, being able to give feedback and accept feedback, understanding how to do that constructively and in a friendly and engaging way. Um, you get to do meetings, which is something people always say like, oh, I hate meetings. But it's something that's just part of part of work, right? And especially if you're remote, it's going to be over video quite a lot. So open source gives you all, all of these experiences. And because it's happening in the open, it's so easy for you to show what you've done and what you've accomplished and who you are and, and, and what you can do, not just from a technical perspective, but also from a... I can work on a team kind of perspective. I can work well with other people kind of thing. I can take the lead or I can take guidance, you know, both of those things. So I think it's amazing what you said about chaos and I'm, I'm glad you, you're getting that experience. So um, you mentioned about education and I think that's, that is something that I've spoken to quite a few people and um, it can be problematic from a couple of of perspectives and I think you touched on some of that when you mentioned the fact that there's there's like a lot of educational material out there but it's as if everyone forgot about the beginner stage um, of the code stuff the design stuff the documentation writing but also just contributing to open source and what even why would I even want to do like even those basic things um, but even if you ignore all of that what I found a lot of people kind of complain about, and I've had this discussion with some other folks um, where they've talked about the fact that there is so much content, so much educational material out there that we should almost stop making more and instead curate all the stuff we have. Does that does that kind of ring true for you? You know, that there's so there's more of a almost like a, a path that you can walk that, that maybe senior people or so has kind of put together, knowing well that the, this is a good resource, this is a good resource, and they've kind of taken all of those and they've built this little roadmap for you that you can follow. Um, I'd say that I don't think there's enough education. And um, I don't think the amount of resources we have um, equates exactly to education it's one thing to have resources and it's one thing to have resources that people can access and people can use now until there's enough resources that people can access and use we don't have enough so um if anyone in the tech industry at any level is excluded we have not done enough 
And um, there's no such thing as too much, too much resources. One could be too bulky for one, and you could find another that's succinct and enough to learn whatever it is you have to learn. One could be too um, overwhelming for one, and then someone else would come around and find that pretty easy to follow. So I don't think um, there's such thing as too much resources. If anyone is left out, um, if anyone is excluded from this education, then our work is not complete. Um, I'd like to also state that um, curation of resources is also important. I think I think it really is, um, but I don't think it's as important as the accessibility of these resources. So if we have a billion resources out there and there are like three billion people who can access these resources who don't even know they exist, then we've not done actual education. We've just created content. And I think there's a whole lot more that goes into education than um, creating stuff. Creating stuff is cool, really, but creating stuff that people can access and find useful is another thing. I, I'd say it's very easy to get lost in the tech industry, given how many paths, how many fields, how many languages, how many frameworks, how many paradigms you have to learn or you have to master. So I would say creation of these resources are very important. Um, it is important that people know that certain roles exist, certain parts exist, and that there's more than one road to success and um, these roads, these seemingly few and unimportant roads are very, very consequential to how um, the world advances in technology. So um, yes, I quite agree and disagree with that. And um, when it comes to education, I, I really hope that we do more as regards access. Um, lots of people out there need to know that open source is, is open to everyone. Um, both um, content writers, designers, uh, marketers, social media managers, um, artists, illustrators, graphic designers, um, not just engineers alone. And um, yeah, a lot, a lot more people need to find out that there is space for them in open source and they need to know how to get in and how to thrive in open source. So until we do that, um, our work is not complete not yet complete yeah well said and in terms of accessible um do you I, i'm assuming that price is one of those things that can make things accessible or not um and then the other is do you think that there is also a challenge in terms of infrastructure so the country's infrastructure itself um for example in south africa we our electricity grid is under severe strain. So we have this thing called load shedding that's meant to prevent a complete blackout. So, you know, for periods during the day, the power in certain areas to just shut off. Sometimes it's for two hours at a time. Sometimes it's for four hours at a time. Um, and, you know, the knock-on effect of that is some people don't have internet access for that, for that period of time. Or they do have internet access, but they're reliant on mobile internet. And... As the longer that load shedding runs for, the slower the connection gets. And my experience have been as soon as you hit a slow 4G, like the internet almost doesn't exist for you anymore. You almost can't access anything. So 
I think that what you were referring to in terms of people being able to access um, this educational material, I think those two things play a large role there, right? Having access to reliable infrastructure or an alternative way to access the same content if you happen to not have internet access. And then the other thing is being able to pay for a course or a um, boot camp or whatever it might be in a way that is affordable for you. There's this concept called um, purchase power parity pricing. Um, the idea being that you will give somebody a different price based on where they live. So if I'm buying the course in South Africa, I'm not going to pay the same price as somebody who lives in San Francisco because my purchase power, purchasing power is much less due to the currency and, and the country I live in than somebody that lives in San Francisco. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, yes, you're very correct. Um, price parity, um, country infrastructures are also um, barriers that people have when it comes to assessing open source education. But I also think things like um, language, things like um, things like language, things like um, um, an active and actually engaging community. Sometimes people give up on dreams simply because there's no community to help foster those dreams. Now, say, say for example, you want to, you want to contribute to open source, right? You read an article somewhere that open source is something great you can do and um, something you can um, contribute to um, that could be beneficial to you career-wise. And then um, all of a sudden you find that there is no community within your local environment that um, that helps you foster this goal of yours to contribute to open source. So absence of community, especially one that um, fosters education about open source can also be a problem. Then representation. Um, I think it's important that people see people like them um, achieve things. Maybe only then would they think that that particular endeavor is worthwhile. So if you go into um, an open source community and then it's full of people that are not like you, um, you tend to wonder if this is a space you can be in. This is a space for you, a place for you. And it can be very hard reconciling with that or thriving regardless of that because one, there could be um, um, poor communication due to these differences, lack of communication due to these differences, and just demotivation as to continuing with that endeavor. So I think representation fosters access. There's someone like me up there who has my interest at heart and have crossed these barriers. They can bring or they are in a better position to provide solutions to solving or lowering these barriers such that it's not as hard as it was for them for me to get my foot in. So it's like one person gets out, gets out of the cage and then tries to unlock the cage so other people can get out as well. Um, so representation in open source is important because one, that's how people know that it's, it's something they can do and it's something that is open to them. And two, that's how people speak on behalf of other people like them facing the problems that they 
faced and how solutions to this problem can be brought about. So besides pay parity, country infrastructures, which are very, very, very great um, obstacles to open source accessibility, um, these things can also be um, a reason for um, a reason why accessibility to open source materials, open source communities might be difficult as well. So, yeah. 100% agree. Uh, representation is incredibly important and community is just what makes all the difference. I've seen that time and time again. So not having someone like you that you can look up to um, and not having the support of a community makes it extremely hard. Um, Terentopia, this was an amazing conversation. Thanks so much for joining. I'm glad we finally made this happen and um, the, the technology played along with us. Um, in closing, I have two things. The one is before we started recording, I asked how to pronounce your name so I can do that correctly. But then I asked you also if there is a story behind the name and if that has a meaning and you shared a really lovely story, which I would love for you to share. And then after that, if you would tell people, how can people find you on the internet? How can people support you? Um, so my name is Timmy Tope, and um, it means mine is enough to be grateful, or um, this is a reason to be grateful. And the story behind that was it kind of took a while after my mom got married to my dad for them to have a child. So I think I happened like five years post-marriage, I think, and it was something that brought a lot of joy um, to my family. So, um, the gratitude that was felt around, um, the period was what, um, influenced my name. So, um, yes, I was born of gratitude. Um, where to find me on the internet? Um, I am Omolere, that's spelled O-M-O-L-E-R-E on the chaos community. Um, I'm Omolere but um, O-M-O-L-X-R-E. You can find me on that username on Instagram, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Um, I'm just Timmy Sopayasama. Um, if you type in my name, I'll, I'll come up on LinkedIn, definitely. So, um, yes, that's that's how. On GitHub, I'm also Timmy Sopayasama. So, yes, that's how you can find me. Thank you. Amazing. Yeah, and we'll include links to all of this in the show notes. Thanks again, Timitope, for spending some time with me and sharing your story and your thoughts and your insights. It was great. I can't wait to share this with everybody. Um, I hope you have a lovely rest of your day or evening. I think you're pretty much same time zone as me, so it's like 10 p.m. at night. So have a rest, uh, good rest of what remains of today, and um, I'll speak to you on the Kales Slack. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for having me. This was a lovely conversation. And you're an amazing host. Thank you for having me. And yes, you you have a, we're on the same time zone, I think, but it's around 9 p.m. where I am. But yes, um, have a lovely rest of your day and weekend. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Mycelium Network Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have something to add? Continue the conversation on GitHub and join the community on Slack. Until the next one, keep making the web awesome.